Well, I certainly appreciate Eric's, Eric Moore's message from last week. It was a great blessing to this church. He did a tremendous job handling the word as he consistently does. Uh, and it's, it's good to have men in this church where in my absence they can stand in this pulpit and faithfully proclaim. So my many thanks to Eric and to our God who sends men like Eric. Well, since November, we have been following this journey of Abraham's, a journey of faith. When God called Abraham to leave his family, God made very great promises to Abraham. He promised that Abraham would be both blessed and a blessing, that a great nation would come from him, that the whole earth would be blessed because of Abraham, would be blessed through him. And so, Trusting in God, Abraham left. He left everything behind, and he followed God into an unknown place. And since then, we have seen the many waxings and wanings of Abraham's faith. But regardless of Abraham's faith, whether it was strong or whether it was faltering, God continually proved himself to be faithful, to be unwaveringly trustworthy and undeservedly generous. And this journey where Abraham is is learning who this God is, this God that calls something out of nothing, this God who brings life where there was death, this journey, Abraham is learning to trust this God, this great God. And all along the way, as he has been meandering through the promised land, Abraham has been building altars to Yahweh, to his shield, to his Lord, to his creator, to Jehovah Jireh. And these many themes that I have very briefly rehearsed, they come colliding climactically into today's passage. This passage today is the pinnacle of Abraham's journey. It's the passage where Abraham's faith finds its ultimate test and where God's grace is profoundly demonstrated and where Abraham will build his final altar. So in Genesis 22, where we are this morning, I want to ask the question, why does God tell Abraham to sacrifice his son, to sacrifice Isaac? What does it prove? And then I want to look at the very many layers that are in Genesis 22, and they they eventually culminate in Christ, and we are going to go there this morning. And along this brief journey this morning, I want to take moments to point out applications. And boy, we'll just, we're just touching on a few. There are so many. Let's read it, though. Let's read it together. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or anything to him or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has born children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chesed, Azo, Fildash, Jildoth, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor. Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rehuma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maha. Let's pray. Speak to us this morning, Father. What an incredible, heavy, story that we read, but how awesome the truths that pierce through it, break through the shadows of the Old Testament of Genesis and bring us into this very age where we see our Savior, our Lord. Yes, speak to us through your word this morning, I pray. Amen. Passage begins with After these things, right in verse 1. The last time stamp that we've had in Genesis was Genesis 21.8, when we learned that Isaac had been weaned, so he was about three years old. Since then, Abraham has been living in Abimelech's territory. We heard about Abimelech last week. He's been living in this land of the Philistine for years, 
likely a whole decade now. We just read, as we were going through chapter 22, that Isaac carried a load of wood up a mountain. So he's not a little three-year-old anymore. He's not a little kid. Yet in verses 5 and 12, Isaac is called a boy. So this indicates that Isaac is anywhere from 12 to 16 years old, likely. I like to think that Isaac's probably 13, the age of bar mitzvah, what would become the age of bar mitzvah much later in Jewish tradition. But it's at that age, at 13, when a boy is coming into manhood, and he is eligible now for ceremonial worship of God, which is what we see happening here in chapter 22. Of course, that's just my speculation that he's 13. But even though it is my speculation, even though we just spent a moment on speculation, we always want to keep our eyes on Scripture, what exactly it is telling us. We don't want to read too much into it. And so notice, Sarah isn't present at all in this entire passage. What she must have been experiencing, what she must have been thinking as all of this happened, that's the realm of imagination and motion pictures. Her climactic moment was in the preceding chapter with the birth of Isaac. This chapter, chapter 22, is the climactic moment for Abraham. And so we focus on Abraham, not Sarah, not even on Isaac, on Abraham. Look at verse 1 again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The words, God tested Abraham, God tested Abraham. These are critical words. I mean, it sets the whole stage for everything that follows in this chapter. It's an immediate signal that God is going to do something much bigger than the circumstances, that the circumstances themselves are just the thing that's going to reveal the greater reality, the greater glory. God does not want Isaac to murder his son. He does not want human sacrifice This is against his will. This will be prohibited in the law, and the nations that do these things will be both condemned and judged. That's not what God wants. No, God is putting Abraham to a trial, to a test. When God brings trials, it is not to destroy, like killing Isaac. It is not to destroy, but it is to refine and to reveal. Like Peter writes, in 1 Peter verse, chapter 1, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when, we, when I preached through 1 Peter a few years back, we saw that That praise and glory and honor that's revealed through faith is praise and glory and honor that God is bestowing on us in whom dwells faith. It's astonishing what God produces through the trial. So something is being revealed, something precious, something sacred, something glorious in the fires of trial. James writes about this too. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kind, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I'm convinced that both James and Peter had Abraham in their mind when they were writing these things, at least in part. God is testing Abraham. He puts Abraham to the test to bring into being something that had not yet been revealed, something that had not yet been seen. And whatever it is, it's going to perfect and complete Abraham and his journey. God's testing is creating. That's so important, brothers and sisters, to understand that God's testing is creating. Faith, resurrection, grace are entering the world in a brand new way through this test that he puts Abraham to. And so God calls out, Abraham! And Abraham responds with, Here I am. These are the only words that Abraham speaks to God in chapter 22. He speaks it twice to God. Here and in verse 11, here I am. You remember the journey of Abraham? When God speaks to Abraham, his usual response is to negotiate, to ask questions, to ask for guarantees. But here it's simply this trusting, obedient, ready, here I am. And then God delivers to Abraham an impossible command. And it is a test unique to all humankind. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. If you're astute, you will know that Isaac is not the only son of Abraham. There's also Ishmael. And Abraham's love for Ishmael hasn't been withdrawn. He still loves Ishmael. But it's been about a decade now since Ishmael has been gone which likely resulted in Abraham growing that much more close to Isaac, the son of promise, more treasured in the eyes of his father. But, but more importantly than that, in the eyes of God the Father, Isaac is the only son with whom he holds covenantal relationship. He is the only son through which the promises and the covenant and the blessing flow. Only Isaac. So yes, Isaac is very, very precious to Abraham. If you have children, how precious are they to you? And if you only have one child, how much more precious is that one child? And if all of your hopes and joys and dreams are folded into that one child, then how precious is that child? And if you recognize that the hope of the world is folded into that one child, then how much more precious is that one child? Is there anything more precious than that child? That's the question God is asking Abraham. Is there anything more precious than that child? This is the test. What 
is most precious. And God calls Abraham to slay his only son, who he intensely loves, and then burn his body on the altar of sacrifice. How heavy these words must have been. Who could bear them? And Abraham said, Here I am. But God doesn't want him to stay where he is. He is to take Isaac, literally grasp, hold on to, bring him near, and then go. He's to go to the land of Moriah, to a yet unrevealed mountain, and there perform this impossible task. And Moriah is no arbitrary region. It is a place that will forever hold significance to the people of God. It holds significance to us today, Moriah. But more on that later. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse 1, we pass right through a decade in three words after these things. Now, after having received this impossibly heavy command, things seem to just go right into slow motion. They slow way down. When God had called Abraham to leave Ur, Abraham just suddenly left. There's not a word of preparation. It's just God called, Abraham went. But here we're getting this detailed account of Abraham's activities before he sets out for the land of Moriah. And the very last thing that he does, four different things are listed. The last thing that he does is cut the wood. I wonder if there's a suggestion there of Abraham's psychological dilemma, saving this emotionally laden task to the very end, cutting the maybe fragments of hope He does it with complete obedience, guaranteeing this is just pure, faithful obedience into one of the most difficult things any human being has ever been asked to do. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham journeyed three days from Beersheba in the south to the region of Moriah in the north. It's about south and north in this map. It's about 40 miles as the crow flies. That's a long distance. Soon we will discover, maybe you already see it, Isaac has no idea of what's happening. Abraham alone bears the knowledge of what he must do. Forty plus miles to walk through the wilderness and think. Forty miles of left and right hand turns. Forty miles where he could have done something else. But he doesn't waver. He marches forward and on the third day he looks into those distant hills. And he sees that particular height, and somehow he knows it. 
That's where you will burn your son. He orders his servants to stay, wait, wait for his return. I find it interesting that they were, both of these young guys were brought all this way only to be left behind. And look again what Abraham says to them. Verse 5, I and the boy will go over there, up there, and worship and come again to you, and come again to you. And here's our first look into the mind of Abraham. He tells his servants that he and Isaac and his son will return to them. And yet there's no reason to think that Abraham is not going to do what he set out to do. There's no reason to think that he has not come here to sacrifice his son. He's not turning aside from that. He is resolute. He doesn't know how yet. He does not know how this is going to happen. But he believes something, something will happen that allows me to keep my son. God will provide. He believes an impossible Impossible things. In Hebrews 11, verses 17 and 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. There's never been a resurrection. Abraham has no context of resurrection like we do. Nobody has been brought from death to life before. And yet Abraham knows that this almighty God who has been journeying with him, he has the power to bring a dead person back to life. And so the writer of Hebrews says that he believed after he sacrificed his son and burned his body God would raise Isaac from the dead, from the grave. Speaking of Abraham, Paul wrote, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God made a promise, and Abraham knew. He has learned by now. When he makes a promise, it happens. God promised Abraham that the nations, that nations rather, would come through his son of promise. God had promised that the entire earth would be blessed through his son, through Isaac. He believed in God's word so entirely, so completely that he took Isaac up that mountain and truly believed that he would return again with his same son, Isaac. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. We'll see that phrase repeated a few times. They went both of them together. Abraham lay the wood atop Isaac for his son to carry the burden. But it's ironic because he soon intended to lay Isaac atop that wood. 
With solemn resolve, he takes the implement of death in his own hand, the fire and the knife. And as they climb Moriah together, Abraham's burden is far greater than Isaac's. Verse 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. I think you can hear in Isaac's words the the innocence, the complete trust that he has in his father. He says, my father. Again, Abraham answers with the words, here I am. And this call and response There's profound love being expressed between father and son. Isaac sees all the elements of sacrifice. Everything is here. It it seems that everything's ready. All but the animal. Where is the animal that we will sacrifice to God? And he knows how that works. But he doesn't know how this works. Where is the lamb? And I think that I can imagine in Abraham's response a catch in his voice. When he effectively says, God will provide, my son. I imagine every step of that mountain, Abraham is repeating to himself, God will provide. God will provide. God will provide. And then they come to that place, that awful place. And God has to provide. They came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. For the last time in the record of Abraham, he builds an altar. He has seeded the whole promised land with them, and here, this one is the last one, this one for his son. Once it's made, he places the wood on it, and then he turns to bind his son. And you know in that moment, Isaac's question is answered. Now he clearly knows what is to be sacrificed. Isaac clearly is going to be much swifter than his father, who is at least 113 at this point. He's probably strong enough to resist his father. There's not a hint of struggle. A mention of dissent. The father binds his one and only beloved son, and the son receives it. Why does he bind him? Did you ever ask that? What's the point of the cords? Is it if, in case Isaac's resolve suddenly falters and he tries to escape the altar? Is it to make sure that Isaac is still, he doesn't move, so that when Abraham does strike, it strikes true, and it is a merciful death? Or is it simply just to delay? To do something that will take a little bit longer. Maybe God will change his mind in the meantime. But regardless, Isaac is bound. He is now secured to his fate. 
Orthodox Jews refer to this whole scene on Mount Moriah as Akedah, the binding. Now bound and placed on the altar, we read Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. In other words, he had the knife in his hand, he raised it above his son, and he was ready to plunge it in. And he hears, Abraham! Abraham! With urgency, imagine the frantic hopefulness in Abraham's third response. Here I am! You see who speaks to Abraham here? Look at it. In verse 11, look at it. Here on the summit of Mount Moriah, Abraham hears from the angel of the Lord. Who is that? It's Christ, the pre-incarnate Son of God. We've seen it already in Abraham's journey. We see it over and over again in the Old Testament. It is Jesus who stays Abraham's hand. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or, anything, or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So with his journey completed, with his altar built, with his son bound, and with the knife raised, Abraham has now thoroughly demonstrated the depth of his faith, his commitment to Yahweh, And there were countless opportunities to waver or to fail, plenty of time for doubt and anxiety to overwhelm and turn him aside. But despite it, despite it all, the unimaginable difficulty, Abraham remains steadfast in the faith, even ready to kill his own son. He was not looking to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things grounded on the unshakable promises of God, that if this is the promised son, you will even raise him from the grave. In Abraham's obedience, the angel of the Lord says that he sees Abraham fears the Lord. Yahweh is being anthropomorphized here. He's being given human-like characteristics, things like discovery and learning. Of course, God knew Abraham would obey. God is not learning something new in this whole scene. He knew the many twists and turns in Abraham's journey that brought him to this point, and he knew exactly what Abraham would do. But without that test, without be theoretical, Only a thing of the mind. But it was obedient action that brought faith out of the heart and thrust it into the world. And this through the test. This through the trial. The trial brings what dwells in the heart out and thrusts it into the world. It was true for Abraham and it is true for you. James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And he was called a friend of God. Scripture clearly teaches that a person is justified by faith alone. It is only by faith that a person is saved. But like James argues elsewhere, faith without works is dead. If your faith has no works, it is meaningless. And so what we are seeing is that Abraham's faith is completed by his sacrificial act. There's nothing theoretical about Abraham's faith now. It has been thrust into the world. It it has entered reality as a real physical act that has happened. A trial was a test, or the trial was a test, and through its fires it revealed the golden actions of faith. Here's a man who trusted in God so completely that he believed in resurrection before resurrection existed. Here's a man who feared God. Here's a man who, that became a friend of God. For he did not withhold his son, his one and only son, from God. He wanted God more than anything. More than that which was most precious to him, and this must confront all of us. We are meant to ask this question, let it probe our hearts, what do we value more, God or God's gifts? Isaac was God's gift to Abraham, and yet Abraham was willing to offer his one and only son, a sacrifice beyond value, he was willing to offer Isaac in obedience and worship unto God. What if God asks you to sacrifice your reputation, your bank account, or your health for his glory rather than yours? What if he takes your child whether off to some foreign mission field or by some terrible tragedy, what if God takes everything from you? Do you believe that he will reward, restore, resurrect? Is your hope in Jehovah Jireh or is it in the things that he has given to you? Will you respond in faith like Abraham when the question comes, Here I am. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, and he took, it's hard to see, and he took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Out of nowhere appears this ram caught in the thicket, twisted in the thicket. Some translators say that this should rather be rendered, behind him was a ram just caught in a thicket by his horn. Suddenly it ran up and got itself stuck. But either way, the text is clearly indicating that this ram is a provision from God. This ram has come from the hand of God. Just as Abraham believed, God had provided. Imagine that overwhelming 
sense of joy and relief, the tears that flood into Abraham's heart as he cuts the cords of his son. And then he goes and he binds that ram. Like we read from Hebrews 11, Abraham was receiving his son back from the dead. Verse 14, So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Hebrew for the Lord will provide comes to us today in the phrase Jehovah-Jireh. Up the mountain, Abraham believed God would provide. On the mountain, he encountered the glory and the grace of Jehovah-Jireh. Moriah is the noun form of Jireh. On Mount Moriah, Jehovah-Jireh provided a sacrificial substitution. On Mount Moriah, Jehovah-Jireh provided a sacrificial substitution. You know where this is going. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice. Jehovah Jireh. In the person of God the Son. Speaks to Abraham here a second time. But this is the first time. In Abraham's entire journey. That God confirms the promise with an oath. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Hebrews 6, starting in in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited... Obtain the promise. The promise is his, and God has sworn by himself. God's oath is the culmination of all the promises that he has been making to Abraham since chapter 12. The promise is spoken in Ur and beneath starry skies and between, from between eviscerated animals. All these promises are now finally, formally, forever Abraham's and Abraham's offspring. And God pledged that oath upon his own character. And since God's character upholds the universe, it means that if these promises fail, then all reality collapses. So as surely as God is holy, so will his promises be fully, entirely, completely fulfilled. Abraham's offspring will fill the earth and they will capture the strongholds of the enemy and every nation on earth will be blessed through his offspring. And this, because Abraham trusted in God, both in word and in deed. So Abraham returned to his young men. 
And they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Just as he said, just as he believed, Abraham and Isaac returned to the two young men. The work completed, Abraham's spiritual journey concluding. How joyful that journey home must have been. Abraham's journey comes to its spiritual end. His faith is proven, and God has etched his plan of salvation upon this one man and his innumerable offspring. So it has been written, and so it shall be done. I'm going to skip over the last few verses. I want to break through the shadows of Genesis to when the angel of the Lord again comes to Mount Moriah. 1 Chronicles 3.1, we read, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the angel of the Lord had appeared to David his father. Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. I believe it is the very place where Abraham offered up his son. I believe it is the very place where God the Father sent his one and only son, the angel of the Lord, to be bound and to be mocked and to be condemned, right in that very place. And just beneath this hill, Jesus once spoke to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. And though he was ordered by the Roman soldiers, it was the Father who placed the sacrificial wood upon his shoulder. It was the Father who led him up Golgotha's height. And yet Jesus is the substitution. He is both the beloved Son and he is the Lamb caught in the thicket. We are the ones who are bound Sin has bound us, and we are burdened under the deserved weight of our own death, our selfishness, our pride earned for us, God's altar of wrath and condemnation's furious fires. That was our lot, and how we raged against it. How we trembled beneath the hand of God. And all our effort to ignore or deny this reality can never extinguish the consuming flames that come But in his mercy, God provides. Jehovah Jireh, he speaks. He says, look, behold the lamb with thorns twisted upon his brow. See my son, my one and only son, in whom I am well pleased. He takes your place. I bind him to your altar. Believe in him. Believe in him and be saved. And by faith we are freed. And our cords are broken. And our condemnation removed. And by faith we are loved. With subtle reference to Genesis 22, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All glory and honor and praise be given to Jehovah Jireh, he who did not spare his son but gave him up for us all. All praise to him. And the applications of Genesis 22 are boundless. I have touched on only a few. Trials that refine and realize faith. Reckoning. If you value God more than God's gifts. Trusting in God's promises. And more. But because this scene on Mount Moriah ends with sweeping promises, I feel like we too should end with sweeping promises. Promises that come to us. Because by faith, we are counted among the countless stars of Abraham's offspring. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are. Now being Abraham's offspring, offspring not by blood but by faith, then just as God has sworn, the church will fill the world and capture the strongholds of the enemy and bless every nation on earth. The church, as surely as God is God, so it will be. Jehovah Jireh, God has provided and he will provide. Trust him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Abraham's journey of faith came to this climactic, awesome conclusion here in chapter 22. But yours has yet to be concluded. He calls to you. Here I am. Father. You call to us. May we answer like Abraham. May we believe. Oh Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. May all these things that surround us, that we love, that are rightfully precious, may we remember what is most precious. And if you call us, Count them all as lost for the sake of knowing you and be found in you that by any means necessary we might obtain Christ and resurrection that we would be in your presence for life everlasting. You've given to us the faith of Abraham if we have counted Christ as precious. And now I pray that you give us the faith of Abraham, that we will respond with, here I am. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.